Hello all, my name's Paul and I'm the creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that looks at and recounts a variety of cases from the shores of the UK. Some are solved, some are unsolved, but they always tend to be the more obscure and unfamiliar. On the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, you'll find tales ranging from teenage vampires to sex-crazed killer farmers, from exorcisms gone wrong in the most extreme manner to the most horrific mask-wearing maniacs that you can imagine. Each tale is as true as the sky is blue, and the UK claims the lot. So if you're intrigued, then why not join me each week as I trawl through the archives for these and much more. You can find me on iTunes, Spotify and pretty much wherever you grab your shows from. So I hope you can join me and become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Christian. And this is an advert for Echo On, a, a true, true crime, crime podcast. podcast. We're a fortnightly podcast released every other Saturday where we talk about a variety of true crimes. Whether it's cults, con men, serial killers and everything in between. So you can find us on all usual podcast platforms. Or you can go to our website on www.echoonpod.com. Also on all your social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Echo On Pod. So please subscribe, download and give us a listen. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with Stevie B. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 10. Wow, we're in double digits now. I'm pleased to say that I've finally got the confidence to release the first script I ever wrote. And I start this episode with a confession. I'm slightly jealous of my American friends listening. I don't want to turn this into something it isn't, but I just want to preface this story a little bit. I'm a massive fan of the NFL and have been for many years. One of the things that I love is the pomp and circumstance surrounding the big occasions and the patriotism that surrounds the events. And I don't just mean the last three consecutive Super Bowls, may I add. I'm not American, but even I have the hairs stand up on the back of my neck when I hear, and the rocket's red glare, bombs bursting in air. Regrettably though, patriotism in England is often hijacked by a person. An individual who believes that to be a patriot means that you're openly racist, xenophobic, and rather than the flag wave in celebration, as seen during the World Cup, they decide that they're going to take to the streets and destroy things. This case has been slightly controversial and the reason that I felt that I needed to explain this is that this crime was committed as a part of a hate crime which turned into an issue surrounding religion so this story may not be appropriate for everyone 
but it's one that's so memorable that I had to cover it. Due to the subject matter, I've been delaying this episode, but I've thought to myself, it's not the victim's fault he was killed in the way that he was, and it was not the victim's views that were expressed afterwards. He deserves his story to be told in this podcast. I want people to be aware that I will only be reporting on the facts and that I love you all and probably would not be worried about this if it was not for my diversity training at work. But here goes. If you are British, you can remember where you were when this murder took place. With regards to the aim of this episode though, although I'm going to address the whole situation and all aspects surrounding it, I do believe that doing it as a podcast, which will focus as much on the victim, will take away from the horrific shock factor that has been portrayed in a number of documentaries and will focus on the victim and his family. Just imagine your life ending because of the job you do and not because of who you are. You never saw it coming. You never stood a chance. To your murderers, you are not a person. You're a target because of the uniform that you wear. In their eyes, you stand for everything they hate. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your true crime fix. I'm your host, Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of Fusilier Lee Rigby. He was born Lee James McClure on the 4th of July 1987 at 11.23am in North Manchester Hospital. He was born to mother Lynn Seville and father Phil McClure. He had four sisters, Sarah, Chelsea, Courtney and Amy. Lee was raised in Crumpsall, a suburb three miles north of central Manchester. As a child, Lee studied at Middleton Technology School. Lee suffered from dyslexia, which was not picked up at his school and his teachers just thought that he was a troublesome child. As a result of his turbulent time at school, Lee's childhood was not easy. Although he did not fall foul of the law or have bad parents, the standard teenage attitude and the constant bullying he was suffering brought on what his mother would describe as a vile temper. Her partner, Ian Rigby, whom she'd met in 1999, was a calming influence on Lee. Lee was very close to Lynn's brother Mark, and with the fact that he was struggling at school and Uncle Mark was an ex-soldier, Lee seemed destined to join the armed forces. In 2006, Lee's mother, Lynn, married Ian Rigby. Lee had already decided to change his name by deed poll three years earlier when he had turned 16 to take his stepfather's last name as he had been there for him during the most turbulent time of his life. As soon as he turned 18, Lee went straight to the army recruitment offices in Rochdale, Greater Manchester to sign up. Lee actually failed the entrance exam twice before passing. The recruiting sergeant who was coincidentally called Phil Rigby, but no relation, sat Lee down and that was the first time he was officially diagnosed as being dyslexic. 
With the support of Phil and two months of adult learning, Lee finally passed the exam. Once enlisted, he completed an infantry training course at Catterick Garrison in North Yorkshire and was selected to be a member of the Corps of Drums posted to the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. Life in the battalion took him to Cyprus as a machine gunner based in Dekelia. In 2008, Lee was posted back to London where he stood outside the Royal Palaces performing the battalion's public duties commitment such as ceremonial displays and troop in the colour. But like every serving soldier, he was due a spell in Afghanistan. During the summer of 2009, he was sent to Helmand province to spend six months at the remote, dusty patrol base Wakab in Musakala. As a member of the fire support group, he was in Helmand during one of the worst periods of fighting against the Taliban, and life in the base would have been without luxurious home comforts and was uncomfortable. Pot noodles was the food of choice for Lee rather than army ration packs. After serving in Afghanistan, Lee was later posted to Germany before returning to the UK. In his final two years of service, he fulfilled a recruitment post in Woolwich and assisted with duties at the regimental headquarters in the Tower of London. To those who commanded or served alongside him, Lee Rigby was an extremely popular and witty soldier who had been a lifelong supporter of Manchester United Football Club and was never shy about letting people know it. In October 2007, Lee married Rebecca Metcalf at St Anne in the Grove Church while serving in Southerham near Halifax, West Yorkshire. Together they had a son, Jack, who was born in 2011. However, by the end of 2011, Lee and Rebecca had become estranged and although not yet divorced, Lee was engaged to 22-year-old military policewoman Amy West, who he hoped to marry someday. For people who are unaware, Woolwich is part of the London Borough of Newham, on the south of the River Thames and approximately 11 miles from London's Trafalgar Square. Woolwich has a long military history since the dockyard was built in the 16th century. It was originally the home of the Warren, which became the Royal Arsenal at the start of the early 19th century. Government House dates back to 1781, housing the garrison commandment from 1855 to 1995. It was also home of the Royal Artillery Museum until 2016, as well as the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery. The main building, however, is the Royal Artillery Barracks, originally completed in 1776. In 1973, the barracks were designated a Grade 2 listed building. During the 2012 London Olympics, a number of the shooting events were actually held at the barracks. On the 22nd of May 2013, in the area surrounding John Wilson Street in Woolwich, 
Lee Rigby lost his life in a brutal broad daylight attack which stunned the British public and caused tensions to rise again between different cultures within the UK. The timeline of events have been reported as follows. I've included a map of the relevant areas on the show's Facebook page available at True Crime Fix Podcast. So I am really sorry if you're listening whilst you're driving, but I will do my best to describe where everything happens. At 1pm on that fateful day, two men, Michael Adebolajo and Michael Adebowale, left Adebolajo's address at Greenwich House in Oakwood Close, Lewisham, five and a half miles south of Woolwich. They left driving a 1995 navy blue Vauxhall Tigra and drove along the A205 South Circular towards Woolwich High Street. The day before, Adebolajo had visited an Argos store on Lewisham High Street and brought a five-piece kitchen knife set and a knife sharpener for £44.98. For any sales personnel, it was a simple everyday home purchase, but unfortunately the purpose of these items in the wrong hands ultimately proved to be a fatal mix. At 1.30pm, the Tigra was spotted travelling along Wellington Street, an artillery place in Woolwich, before continuing to an area just south of Woolwich Ferry. They then continued to drive around for a while until at 2.13pm Adabalajo and Adabawali were again spotted on Wellington Street parked next to Artillery Place. At 2.10pm Lee Rigby wearing a navy blue Help for Heroes hoodie and carrying an army backpack arrived at Woolwich Arsenal Dockland Lights Railway Station. He had been attending a recruitment fair at the Tower of London. Help for Heroes is a British charity launched on the 1st of October 2007 to help provide better facilities for British servicemen and women who have been wounded or injured in the line of duty. Upon exiting the station, Lee walked along Wellington Street before crossing John Wilson Street and then entering Artillery Place, moving away from the army barracks towards a shop on the other side of the road. In distance, the walk was approximately 500 metres in total. At 2.18pm, Adabalajo, who was driving, spotted Lee's hoodie and identified him as a soldier, the target that the pair had been hunted for. Adabalajo sped up and deliberately drove at Lee at a speed between 30 and 40 miles an hour, which is 48 to 64 kilometres per hour, as he crossed the road at Artillery Place, pinning him against a road sign on the pavement. Both men exited the vehicle, which had been badly damaged in the attack. Armed with a meat cleaver, the previously bought knives and a 90-year-old 9.4mm calibre Dutch revolver, eyewitnesses reports state that the two men attacked the motionless body of Lee Rigby, which was lying on the pavement still at the time. 
it was reported that Adebolajo had made attempts to decapitate him. Three minutes later, Adebolajo and Adebowali dragged the lifeless body of Lee Rigby into the middle of the road from the pavement and instead of making any escape, stood around covered in their victim's blood, bragging about their crime which had just taken place, urging passers-by to film the incident. A video obtained by a number of news outlets showed Adebolajo telling passers-by, and I quote, The only reason we have killed this man today is because Muslims are dying daily by the hands of British soldiers. This British soldier is one. He is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You people will never be safe. Remove your governments, they do not care about you. During this time, Adebolajo handed a letter to witness Amanda Donnelly Martin when she arrived on the scene shortly after the murder. The letter was addressed to my beloved children and read like a suicide note. It urged people to seek martyrdom and stated that if you find yourself curious as to why carnage is reaching your own towns, then know it's simply retaliation for your oppression in our towns. One of the first eyewitnesses on the scene was a French-born scout leader from Cornwall, Ingrid Leu Kennett. She was returning from a trip to see relatives in France and having visited her children in Plumstead, was on her way to Victoria to catch a coach back to Cornwall. As she sat watching the world go by with her suitcases on the number 53 bus, it passed through Woolwich on the way to Parliament Square. It was here that she was suddenly forced, as she describes it, to confront evil in an interview with the Guardian newspaper which was published on the 27th of May 2013. Her testimony gave an insight into the state of mind of Adebolajo and Adebowali straight after the attack, as well as the reactions of the public in the immediate aftermath. Ingrid said, and I quote, I went to the body and started to take his pulse, but a Caribbean lady kneeling by his side said, No, 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 he's dead. I asked her if she was sure, and she said yes. Ingrid said that she still felt for his pulse because her first aid training made her think that a severed artery in his arm might have weakened the blood flow to his wrist. She was then told by somebody later identified as one of the perpetrators, don't touch the body, go away. Around her, she estimated that 60 to 70 people had gathered at a distance, all watching some filming with their phones, none offering to help. Meanwhile, the woman sitting by Lee Rigby's side was stroking his back and it was later reported praying for him. Ingrid then said, I stood up and asked, Why? Why don't you want me to touch the body? The man, staring hard back at her, told her, that the victim was a British soldier and that he killed Muslim people in other countries. Ingrid continued, I looked at the body 
and he didn't look like a soldier to me. She asked the attacker if he needed a car or money to help him flee. But I didn't really want to influence him in any way, she said. I want to fight, he said. In London, Ingrid asked. Yeah, I want a war in London. Ingrid told him that he couldn't do that and why didn't he just join a proper army and kill as many people as he wanted to there? That would be a bit more useful than just being in London and doing this. The attacker told Ingrid he wanted to do it in London. Ingrid told him the police would arrive soon. I don't care, the attacker said. I'm going to fight them and shoot them. As the drama and jeopardy intensified, Ingrid kept one ear open for police sirens, convinced that they must be racing to the scene. But there was nothing, she stated. She was worried that if another British soldier walked by, he might see that and attack him. And I didn't want him to see the police trying to do something. If possible, I wanted him to see nothing. The attacker was very agitated and pacing backwards and forwards close up to me. He was really upset. A woman then approached Ingrid tentatively and asked her to leave. Adabalajo made a point of saying that women and children are safe but they would need to keep back when the police arrived. But then Ingrid noticed her bus starting to pull away. I was suddenly thinking that my luggage was on board and I'm going to miss my coach to Cornwall. I thought to myself, I'd done as much as I could here. I looked at the guys and asked them if they were sure they didn't need a car or something. They said no. End quote. First emergency service responders arrived at approximately 2.29pm, setting up a cordon to keep the gathering crowds back, but remained behind it until their armed colleagues arrived five minutes later. Upon their arrival, Adabalajo and Adabawali, the former brandishing a meat cleaver and the latter brandishing the revolver, which was in fact revealed by police to have not been loaded, ran at the police. Armed officers opened fire on the two men with non-fatal wounds, but these caused the men to fall to the ground. It was later revealed that the intention of the two attackers involved was to be shot dead by the police so that they would become martyrs. One of the armed responders, known only as D-49, told the jury at the subsequent trial, I saw a black male running towards me, waving both his hands in the air in a chopping motion. In his right hand, I saw what I call a meat cleaver or a machete. I instantly thought, he's going to kill me. I went to draw my Glock. Due to my position in the car, the internal door has a panel jutting out. I could not immediately draw my Glock out due to this. It was a split-second decision to draw my taser. I could see the look in the suspect's eyes. They were so wide 
and I could see the whites of them. He was shouting something. She then spoke of the second suspect, Adabawali, who was holding the gun. I thought, oh my God, he's going to shoot me. I feared for my life. Following the incident, Commander Simon Letchford gave the following report to the awaiting media. Good evening, I'm here to give you an update about an incident that's currently unfolding uh, this afternoon in Woolwich. And to give you further details of the situation, as you can understand, this situation is fastly evolving, uh, evolving and at this stage I can only give you the information that I have available. At approximately 2.20 this afternoon, police officers were called to an assault in John Wilson Street, Woolwich, where one man was being assaulted by two other men. A number of weapons were reported as being used, including a report of a firearm. Officers, including local officers from Greenwich Police Station and shortly, fire, shortly after firearms officers, attended the scene. On arrival, they found a man who was later pronounced dead. At this early stage, I'm unable to provide any more information about the man who has died. Two men, who we believe from earlier reports to have been carrying weapons, were shot by police. They have both been taken to separate London uh, hospitals and are receiving treatment for their injuries. I can understand that this incident will cause community concern and I would like to reiterate that we are investigating the circumstances of this incident. The NPS will investigate the circumstances of this man's death and the Independent Police Complaints Authority, uh, sorry, Commission, as is routine, will investigate the circumstances involving the discharge of police firearms. There will continue to be a police presence in this area tonight and in surrounding areas and this presence will continue as long as it is necessary. I would ask people to remain calm and to avoid unnecessary speculation. I will update you further when I have more information. Thank you. A devastated Rigby family gave the following tribute to Lee. Ian Rigby led the tribute to his stepson. What can we say about Lee? our hero. We are so proud of Lee. When he was born, the family adored him. It was a precious gift given to us. Lee had a fiery temper. When he was younger, I used to sit on him until he calmed down. Until he was about 15, then he got too big. He used to sit on me. Lee's dream of growing up was always to join the army, which he succeeded in doing. He was dedicated and loved his job. Lee adored and cared a lot for Hall, his family, and he was very much a family man, looking out for his wife, his young son Jack, and his younger sisters, who in turn looked up to him. He always had a banter with them, but would never ever let any harm come to them. He was over the moon being a dad and an uncle, and he adored all his family. Lee was a man who loved people. He had many friends growing up in Middleton and on army duties all over the world where he'd been sent. He believed life was for living and he would be sorely missed by all who knew him. Courtney and Amy, his younger sisters, wrote this for Lee. Rest in peace, Lee. We loved you so much and you didn't deserve this. You fought for your country and did it well. You will always be our hero. We are just upset you left us so early. We love you, Lee, good night. 
last text he sent to his mum read, Good night, mum. I hope you had a fantastic day today because you are the most fantastic one in a million mum that anyone could ever wish for. Thank you for supporting me all these years. You're not just my mum, you're my best friend. Good night and love you loads. We would like to say good night, Lee. Rest in peace, our fallen soldier. We love you loads and words could not describe how loved and sadly miss you will be. Lee's mother revealed that Lee should not have been at Artillery Place when he was. The night before the murder, he had worked at a recruiting and hospitality event at the Tower of London. As a result of a successful day, Lee had a night out on the town with his army friends. He got in at 4am the following morning, but was still at work for 8am. As the day went on, his bosses took pity on him and sent him home at midday to catch up on some sleep. He should have got back to Woolwich at 6pm, thus not coming into contact with Adabalajo and Adabawali. So what caused these two men to behave the way they did? Michael Adabalajo was born in 1985 and Michael Adabawali was born in 1991. They were both born into Christian families of Nigerian descent and both at one time had attended the University of Greenwich. Both men had since been converted to Islam and had both been radicalised. Tom Whitehead of the Daily Telegraph wrote a story on the two of them published on the 15th of November 2014. It read, They were polite, nice guys from a strict Christian family. Michael Adebolajo's passions were music, football and girls. Michael Adebowale was a lovable, quiet boy who enjoyed cooking Jamie Oliver recipes. Yet, during their teens, these two East London boys descended into a life of petty street crime and drugs before converting to Islamic extremism which drove them to commit the brutal murder of drummer Lee Rigby. Adebolajo is the son of Anthony and Ibitoyi Adebolajo. Nigerian immigrants who settled in Romford where Michael and his three siblings were born. During the trial, he told the court how his mother taught him to pray, but a Jehovah's Witness named only as Ron fired his interest in religion. One of his best friends at school was Kirk Redpath, who joined the Irish Guards and became a drummer before being killed in Iraq in 2007. Adebolajo would later blame Tony Blair for his death. Redpath's younger brother Grant recalled how they would sit in Adebolajo's garage playing computer games and listening to music. Michael did a lot of emceeing and was really good at it. I just don't know what happened to him in the last 10 years. After leaving school, Adebolajo became involved in gangs smoking marijuana and dealing drugs. One former classmate said 
he's changed quite dramatically and started robbing people at knife point. It was around this time that Adabalajo began showing an interest in Islam. In an attempt to keep him out of trouble, his parents moved the family from Romford to a smart detached house in Saxelbury near Lincoln, the very heart of Middle England. But the move did not succeed in turning Adabalajo away from radical Islam. He moved back to London and studied at Greenwich University. He converted to Islam in 2003 and was radicalised by Bakari Muhammad, the so-called Tottenham Ayatollah. Muhammad had been thrown out of Britain when he was the leader of the now-banned extremist group Al-Mujarun. Adabalajo was also taken under the wing of Bakari's lieutenant and Jem Chowdhury. One former friend said Adabalajo locked himself in a room with this bloke for a few hours and then came out a Muslim convert. Adabalajo began calling himself Mujahid, meaning warrior, a name he insisted on being called throughout the trial. Adabalajo became more extreme and took part in numerous Islamist protests in London. He also fathered six children, one born just four days before Lee Rigby's murder. In 2006, he was arrested during a violent demonstration outside the Old Bailey, where fellow fanatics were on trial, accused of solicitating murder and inciting racial hatred following the publication of a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad in a Danish newspaper. In 2007, he was filmed by the BBC protesting outside Paddington Green Police Station after the arrest of another fanatic. He was holding a placard which complained of a crusade against Muslims. In 2008, he spent three months in custody after assaulting a police officer. His activities escalated in 2010 when Kenyan authorities seized him along with a group of other youths trying to cross the border into Somalia. It was believed that he wanted to join the Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab. He appeared in court but was not charged. The circumstances of his return home remain unclear, but Kenyan officials claimed that the British authorities treated the case very lightly and did not take the threat seriously enough. It raised the question as to why Adipalajo was not under greater surveillance or prosecuted in the United Kingdom on his return from Africa. Bob Quick, the former Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner, told the BBC's Panorama programme that Adipalajo would have consistently featured as someone of interest after his Kenyan adventure. A street project designed to tackle extremism also raised concerns about him, but engagement with him stopped in 2011 when the government cut funding. Michael Adabawali was born in Eltham, South London, and attended Kibrook School in Greenwich. 
his first steps down the road to extremism came at the age of just 10. Adebowale saw images of the 9-11 attacks on the television, but would later tell psychiatrists that he had been brainwashed by society from an early age. Known as Toby to his friends, he was the son of Juliet Abbaswai, a probation officer, and Adanyeni Odebowale, who worked at the Nigerian High Commission in London. The couple split up after Michael was born, and Mrs Abbaswai was left to raise her son. As a teenager, Adebowale was involved in the Woolwich Boys, a notorious London street gang dominated by Muslim youths of Somali origin. He began suffering from psychosis after seeing a friend with whom he was selling drugs stabbed to death. Adebowale was knifed in the shoulder and the hand in the attack. Psychiatrists later identified that this was the start of psychological problems for Adebowale, exacerbated by heavy smoking of skunk cannabis. His mother began losing control, and while at school he was mentored by Richard Taylor, who was the father of murdered schoolboy Damalola Taylor, but to little effect. In 2009, the year after the stabbing, Adebowale was sent to a young offenders institution for possession with intent to supply drugs. When he came out, he began wearing Islamic robes and became more heavily involved in the more extreme versions of the religion, including handing out extremist literature. Mr Taylor believes he was radicalised in detention. Something must have gone wrong in prison. They must have indoctrinated him in the wrong way. The inquest into Lee's death started on the 31st of May 2013 at Southwark Crown Court. The inquest heard how dental records had to be used to identify Lee. The post-mortem report stated that Lee had died from multiple incised stab wounds. The funeral ceremonies began on the 11th of July 2013, the day before the main funeral was due to take place. Lee's coffin, draped in the Union Jack flag, was carried to Berry Parish Church, where the body would be guarded during an overnight vigil by his comrades-in-arms from the Fusiliers. The procession began in the late afternoon and 22 family members made up the sombre cortege of cars as it snaked its way slowly the two miles from the Red Hall Hotel in Bury towards the church that had long been the garrison chapel for the Fusiliers. The procession was led by a corps of two dozen drummers in scarlet tunics as they marched to a beat. Another comrade carried Lee's ceremonial bearskin hat as a mark of respect. It was a really spectacular fanfare for Lee. The standard bearers held their flags aloft and then solemnly dropped them in honour as Lee's coffin passed by. It was a horrendous afternoon, particularly for Lee's fiancée Amy, 
because army rules said that she was not allowed to be in the church for the arrival of Lee's coffin. She was devastated and had to stand outside with the crowds to watch her beloved partner being carried from his hearse. Lee's sister Sarah managed to sneak her in later that night so that she was able to say a proper goodbye. Lee's military funeral took place on the 12th of July 2013 at Berry Parish Church in Greater Manchester, where his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Taylor, gave his eulogy. Lee's son Jack was wearing a t-shirt which showed the words, My Daddy, My Hero. The funeral was also attended by then Prime Minister David Cameron and he was accompanied by then Mayor of London Boris Johnson. The funeral saw an outpouring of public emotion as well as the funeral being broadcast to thousands outside the church as well as others nationwide. Following the funeral, Lee Rigby was laid to rest in a private burial at Middleton Cemetery. Both men were charged with murder and attempting to murder a police officer on that day as well as planning to murder a police officer on or before that day appeared via video link from Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh on the 27th of September 2013. Having been assessed as to their mental capacity in hospital both men pled not guilty to all charges. The trial of Adabalajo and Adabawali started on the 29th of September 2013 at the Old Bailey in London, with the prosecutor Richard Whittam QC and Judge Nigel Sweeney was presiding. Throughout the trial, graphic details and CCTV footage was shown to the jury outlining the narrative that was explained throughout this episode. The jury heard graphic details from the prosecutor in his closing speech who described how Lee Rigby suffered at least 14 stab wounds causing damage to the bone and cartilage of the off-duty soldier's face and neck. Defence lawyer David Gottlieb said false impression had been given that innocent members of the public were vulnerable when in fact Lee's camouflage backpack and demeanour made him a clear military target. Mr Gottlieb also told the jury that his defendant, Mr Adebolajo, had been demonised by the media and politicians who played on issues including ethnicity and Islam in the aftermath of the attack and clouded the truth. In his closing speech, Mr Whittam said, What these two men did Crashing their car and breaking the back of Lee Rigby and then killing him is indefensible in the law of this country. He went on. Killing to make a political point, to frighten the public, to put pressure on the government, or as an expression of anger is murder and remains murder whether the government in question is a good one, a bad one or a dreadful one. In his closing speech, Mr Gottlieb said, All deaths outside of lawful deaths are cruel, needless and unnecessary. 
Do you think really that this is the cruelest, most sadistic, most callous, most cowardly killing that's ever occurred in our nation's history? I will tell you, it isn't. He asked the jury to consider whether the prosecution had put their case on the basis that it was cowardly and callous to inflame or distract them from the view that this death must be murder and nothing else. Mr Gottlieb told the jury that they genuinely had the choice to acquit his client and that they would be under pressure from outside, from the mob, from the world to convict. He said that the prosecution's case lacks any sense of proportion or of ridiculousness. On the 19th of December 2013, the Old Bailey jury of eight women and four men took approximately 90 minutes to reach its verdict. Guilty. On the 26th of February 2014, they were sentenced to life imprisonment, with Adebolajo given a whole life order and Adebowali ordered to serve at least 45 years. On the 3rd of December 2014, Lee's killers lost their legal challenges to their sentences. Michael Adebolajo had attempted to have his conviction overturned and the whole life sentence reduced, while Michael Adebowali attempted a reduction in his minimum sentence of 45 years. A permanent memorial to Lee was unveiled at Middleton Memorial Gardens in Greater Manchester on Sunday the 29th of March 2015. Greenwich Council announced that a plaque bearing his name would be added to the To All Fallen Servicemen and Women in the St George's Chapel Garden opposite Woolwich Barracks, where Lee was based. As for Lynn, she decided that she was going to do three things to cement Lee's legacy. The first was with assistance from Rosie Dunn was to write a book about her son called Lee Rigby, A Mother's Story. And having read that book in research for this episode, it's a fantastic read and you get to know the feeling that you knew Lee, the individual, at the end of it. The second was to have a permanent memorial and, as I just mentioned previously, this is now in Woolwich. Finally, she wanted to set up a charity in Lee's name, the Lee Rigby Foundation, and this was established on the 27th of April 2016, with the aim to support persons suffering from bereavement or loss, relieving mental and physical distress and saving lives through contact, support and holistic alternative care by providing a retreat and respite centres and promoting activities proven to benefit health. Lynn will forever ensure that the legacy of her son, who passed in such a tragic way, will permanently live on. So that's it for this week. Please remember if you enjoy the show or want to know more, Please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod 
That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. Or look out for our Facebook page. True Crime Fix Podcast. That's True Crime Fix Podcast on Facebook. We also have a closed group, which is True Crime Fix Discussion. I'll be posting information about the week's case on there. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. I also have a closed Facebook page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'll be posting information about the week's case on both groups. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix, and I'll try and post as much as I can on there. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Please also remember that I plan to have a question and answer show after our final episode of this season. That's after episode 12. So if you have any questions, please also post them to the email address. Until next time, Stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who, or what, may be coming around the next corner. Take care everyone.